Thank you for listening to this podcast episode from core to ed Independent Medical Education. The podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Viatris. This podcast series focuses on thrombosis in various clinical conditions and consists of four episodes. Welcome, everybody. My name is Dimitrios Tsakiris. I'm a hematologist at the University of Basel, specialized in hemostasis. My colleague Daniel Bolliger and me are delighted to offer you today an educational podcast. This is uh, the fourth in a series with uh, a focus on thrombotic issues. We are dealing today with perioperative thromboprophylaxis. We think that this is an important subject and it will help you recognize the importance of thromboprophylaxis and uh, anticipate the need for the right choice of product and uh, right duration of uh, treatment. But uh, let us welcome Professor Bolliger first. Good morning, Daniel. Could uh, we have a few words from you on this issue, please? Hello, Dimitrios, and uh, also welcome to everybody from my side. My name is Daniel Bolliger. I'm head of the non-operating anesthesia at the University Hospital Basel, and I have a special interest in perioperative coagulation and patient blood management. And in my view, perioperative anticoagulation strategies and thromboembolism prophylaxis is a very important issue to avoid peri- and postoperative complications and to improve patient outcome. Thank you, Daniel. Let's start first with some thoughts on the pathophysiology of uh, perioperative thrombosis. Uh, this is a subject which was recognized already in the 70s. And uh, first studies by that time realized that uh, most of the thrombotic events start intraoperatively, but about uh, one third of them are self-lysed uh, uh, due to fibrinolysis and are not recognized uh, later. But uh, the risk for peri- and postoperative thrombosis remains. But it changed during uh, the time. It's not the same today as it was 30 years ago. Here, we would like to hear your opinion, Daniel. Do you think that the risk has become less evident or changed due to evolution of surgical technology? So thromboembolic complications are still a relevant problem during and after major surgery. And we know very well that patients are in a prothrombotic state due to inflammatory reaction during surgery and also after surgery. However, if you give too much of anticoagulation, this may interfere with wound healing and bleeding after or during surgery. So in the last years, type and invasiveness of surgery have relevantly changed. I would say that usually surgeons aim for a minimal invasive surgery. In addition, the so-called early recovery after surgery ERAS programs aims for faster mobilizations, feeding, etc. after surgery. These changes may have decreased the risk of thromboembolism over the years. On the other hand, patients getting older and sicker and have more comorbidities. This will increase their risk of postoperative thromboembolic events. 
In addition, we have more patients with cancer surgery and these cancers may be at the later stage of cancer. And uh, this will, of course, lead to a higher risk of thromboembolism after surgery. And it may even require a more intensified and more prolonged prophylaxis against thromboembolic events. This is interesting to hear that uh, despite the technological development of surgical techniques, these improvements uh, can be counteracted by the, let's say, higher burden for thrombosis, which is carried by the patients uh, themselves. But uh, we know in addition to that, that uh, also newer anticoagulants have been developed, which uh, can help us spread the treatment and give the treatment in situations which uh, it was not so easy to do before. Let's go then to our uh, next section of the discussion uh, concerning the actual application of perioperative prophylaxis. Now, the first thing which uh, people would like to do in this situation is to stratify uh, for the thrombotic risk. And uh, in the American literature, risk scores have appeared, such as the Caprini score or Rogers score, which have been used to define whether a patient is, uh, has a low, middle or high risk for thrombosis. What is your experience uh, with th such scores, Daniel, in the European centers? Do we need them? Are they in use? So uh, from my clinical perspective, we do not use such um, risk stratification tools. Of course, they may allow to estimate the general thrombotic risk of the patient. But I think it's more important to have an individual assessment and adjustment of antithrombotic therapy due to the patient risk. Of course, they may be uh, estimated by such scores and also by the surgical risk, which have changed. So these scores may not be very adequate at the present time. And I think that's why we do not use them regularly. But still, there is a need for, let's say, a guidance. Do you use in-house guidelines for thromboprophylaxis in your institute? We have, of course, um, guidelines for thromboembolism prophylaxis in-house, but they are not based on such scores. And they are mainly based on the surgical experiences. And of course, the surgeon has to say when we have to or when we are allowed to start thromboembolic prophylaxis and also how long we should uh, use such prophylactic therapy. Yes, I think you have to balance uh, the thrombotic risk with the bleeding risks that the patient uh, carries and then uh, take the right choice for the anticoagulant. Now, concerning this choice of the antithrombotic uh, agent, we have for a long time heparins as a first choice treatment in use. But uh, in the last 10 years, Additional newer anticoagulants, uh, direct anticoagulants appeared, uh, which have found their place uh, in some kinds of surgery. Uh, could you say there is a general preference for the one or the other, or uh, is the choice based on uh, individualized issues? To be honest, I would say it's an individual approach to each patient. 
Of course, we need some guidelines, as I said before, but in general, we have to adapt these um, guidelines. There are scores, as we've talked about, Caprini score, modified Caprini score to estimate the thrombotic risk, but there are also scores to estimate the bleeding risk, for example, the hat bleed score. But I have to admit that both of them have similar risk factors. So a patient, an old patient with hypertension is at risk for thromboembolic events, but also for bleeding events. So they may not be very helpful in general but, or in the specific patient. But concerning the choice of the agent, would you prefer a low molecular weight heparin as first choice or uh, the newer direct anticoagulants, uh, uh, let's say, for major orthopedic surgery? So from a patient's perspective, the use of uh, oral anticoagulants and especially the newer direct acting oral anticoagulants, they may be much more comfortable as they are, as I said, oral drugs and they need no stitches as the low molecular weight heparins. In addition, um, DOACs seems as safe as low molecular weight heparins and have less or equal bleeding risk. However, um, the action time of the DOEX may be a bit longer, which may be a problem if the patients need emergent revision of um, his surgery or uh, if he is bleeding. So one possibility is, for example, that you use a low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin for the very early postoperative phase or during hospitalization and then change to DOAC after uh, secret wound healing and or hospital discharge. Yes, you have mentioned discharge now, uh, and that brings us to the question of duration of uh, uh, thromboprophylaxis. Do you extend thromboprophylaxis in the time behind discharge, or uh, do you stop it at the discharge of the patient? Uh, what is your practice in the hospital? I think this depends really on the type of surgery. Let's say for hip surgery, you should for sure extend at this time because the patient needs more than, let's say, three, four, five weeks to be fully mobilized. And during this time, he should be under thromboembolic prophylaxis. Similar patients, let's say, with large um, thoracic surgery for cancer, lung cancer, they often need a prolonged and very strong thromboembolic prophylaxis because they are at especially high risk even weeks after surgery. So these are typical examples where you need prolonged thromboembolic prophylaxis. But it depends also on, on the patient and his bleeding risk. In a patient with a very high bleeding risk, you may stop it earlier than in a patient with a generally low bleeding risk. This is also my experience on that issue, that there is a trend for longer duration postoperatively, because uh, if a thrombotic risk factor persists a longer time after hospitalization, then the patient needs uh, coverage, needs the protection against thrombosis. So this is also taken care of in the guidelines. I think that uh, uh, this is clear, especially for major orthopedic surgery or uh, for cancer patients, as you mentioned. But let us go uh, shortly to a couple of uh, more practical issues. I would like to discuss a little bit three subjects Aspirin has been published as an efficient and safe 
antithrombotic in major orthopedic surgery lately. Do you see acceptance of those studies from the orthopedic community or did it find, uh, let's say, an application or not compared to the classical low molecular weight heparins or uh, DOACs? So again, this depends very on the bleeding and thromboembolic risk of the patient. Usually we would use DOACs or low molecular weight heparins and not aspirin for thromboembolic relaxes. However, there may be some special patients, let's say with a very high bleeding risk with DOACs or low molecular weight heparins in which you could choose aspirin as an alternative. But this is really an exception and should not be a recommendation for all patients. In agreement, the ESAIC guidelines from the European Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care from 2018 they recommended the use of aspirin as a 2C recommendation. So you could potentially use it, but uh, it's for sure not the first choice. Yes, yes. 2C is practically expert opinion. It's not uh, absolute uh, evidence-based medicine. That is correct. Then let's go to the next one. Using anticoagulants uh, in the post-operative period, do we need to monitor them for their intensity? What is your experience uh, on that? So um, using low molecular weight heparins or DOACs do not need um, monitoring in general. In contrast, using the older um, vitamin K antagonists, they need monitoring with INR testing to have a safe uh, range of this anticoagulation. So, however, there are some exceptions where monitoring also may be recommendable with patients uh, taking uh, DOAX or low molecular heparin. For example, one, one, or one typical example is that patients needing emergent surgery or surgical revision or which are bleeding. Uh, in these cases, you might consider um, to monitor the drug efficacy of uh, DOAC or of low molecular weight heparins. Usually, we recommend to stop DOACs 24 to 48 hours before surgery. If the patient has renal failure, then uh, add another 24 hours. If there is a low risk uh, surgery, 24 hours may be uh, sufficient. If high risk surgery or if bleeding is a major complication, then uh, you should stop DOACs for 48 hours. But now you have to undergo emergent surgery and you do not know exactly when the last intake of the drug was. In this case, I would recommend to use monitoring. There are drug-specific tests that you can use, but uh, usually you can just use your normal anti-TNA activity test, which can also be used for low molecular weight heparins or unfractionated heparin. Yes, thank you on that. And the last, uh, let's say, practical issue which I would like to touch uh, briefly concerns uh, inferior vena cava filters. You have mentioned patients with bleeding complications. If uh, a patient is not anticoagulable, let's say, or eligible for anticoagulation, some treaters use inferior vena cava filters as thromboprophylaxis. From the hematology point of view, if I can say it a little bit provocatively, 
We do not see any indication for inferior vena cava uh, filters because uh, you just uh, generate additional problems afterwards. Uh, what is your opinion on that, uh, Daniel, and your experience? So inferior vena cava filters, they may be considered in very specific patients. It should be then an individualized and personalized approach based on the discussions between the surgeon, the intensivist, the hematologist, and potentially also the anesthesiologist. But uh, from my own experience, we use such filters in less than five patients per year. So it's an exception, really. And I would uh, just say also that if the choice of inferior vena cava filter is taken, then it should be a removable filter, which can be removed after one to two weeks. That uh, solves a lot of problems later on. Very well. Uh, now, we have covered the subject that we have planned to. Dear listeners, uh, let me summarize the discussion that we have just done and give you a couple of takeaway uh, messages. First, thrombotic risk is a constant threat in postoperative patients but it gets lower with evolution of surgical technology. In addition, a shift from low molecular weight heparins to direct oral anticoagulants and from short to longer duration was established in the guidelines in the last years. And third, aspirin in a low dose can be used instead as an exception in major orthopedic surgery for having low risk for venous thrombosis and if DOAC are not applicable or in case of high risk for bleeding. Professor Bolliger, would you like to add any last words to these statements? Daniel, please. I completely agree with what you said. Prophylaxis of thromboembolic events is still an important issue because such complications are a relevant threat of our perioperative patients, which may relevantly affect their morbidity and mortality after surgery. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel, for uh, your contribution today. Thank you, listeners, for, for being with us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast episode in this series on thrombosis in various clinical conditions. If you liked this episode, look out for more episodes in the series on the Core to Add Medical Education channel. Also, don't forget to rate this episode on the Core to Add website and share our podcast on social media or with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and see you next time. This podcast is an initiative of core to add and developed by Hemostasis Connect, a group of international experts working in the field of hematology. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the experts, and they do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organizations or the rest of the Hemostasis Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the core to add website.